and welcome back to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. I am Kristen Godsey, and today I'm going to continue with my reading of Alexandra Kolontai's essay, Make Way for Winged Arrows. This is the third episode in the series, and so to make sure that you are hearing the entire essay, I suggest that you go back and listen to the previous two. And where we left off last time was when Alexandra Kolontai was getting into the sort of historical section of her essay. And she starts by talking about the feudal system and what she's basically doing in this essay, in this section of the essay that I'm going to read today, is she's taking a very sort of Marxist conception of the way history works and the relationship between the base and the superstructure. And she's arguing that different modes of production, different eras, different epochs of human social relations. And in here, she's looking at the ancient societies, she's looking at feudalism, she's looking at capitalism, and then she's looking forward to the future of socialism. And basically what she's arguing is that each of these different epochs, these different eras of the way that production has been organized among people um, in Europe, and she's mostly talking about Europe here, is that each of these different epochs has its own different conception of love. So in the last episode, we talked about love in ancient society. And here we're going to pick up and talk about love under feudalism. The feudal system defended the interests of the noble family. Virtues were defined with reference not so much to relations between the members of that society as to the obligations of the individual to his or her family and its traditions. Marriage was contracted according to the interests of the family, and any young man, the girl had no rights whatsoever, who chose himself a wife against these interests was severely criticized. In the feudal era, the individual was not supposed to place personal feelings and inclinations above the interests of the family, and he who did so sinned. Morality did not demand that love and marriage go hand in hand. Nevertheless, love between the sexes was not neglected. In fact, for the first time in the history of humanity, it received a certain recognition. It may seem strange that love was first accepted in this age of strict asceticism, of crude and cruel morals, an age of violence and rule by violence. But the reasons for acceptance become clear when we take a closer look. In certain situations and in certain circumstances, love can act as a lever propelling the man to perform actions of which he would otherwise have been incapable. The knighthood demanded of each member fearlessness, bravery, endurance, and great feats of individual valor on the battlefield. Victory in war was in those days decided not so much by the organization of troops as by the individual qualities of the participants. The knight in love with the inaccessible lady of his heart found it easier to perform miracles of bravery, easier to win tournaments, easier to sacrifice his life. The knight in love was motivated by the desire to shine and thus to win the attention of his beloved. The ideology of chivalry recognized love as a psychological state that could be used to the advantage of the feudal class, but nevertheless it sought to organize emotions in a definite framework. For the family that lived in the knightly castle and in the Russian boyars terem was not held together by emotional ties. The social factor of chivalrous love operated where the knight loved a woman outside the family and was inspired to military and other heroic feats by this emotion. 
the more inaccessible the woman, the greater his need to develop in himself the virtues and qualities which were valued by his social class. Usually, the knight chose as his lady the woman least accessible, the wife of his suzerain, or often the queen. Only such a platonic love could spur the knight on to perform miracles of bravery and was considered virtuous and worthy. The knight rarely chose an unmarried woman as the object of his love, for no matter how far above him in station and apparently inaccessible the girl might be, the possibility of marriage and the consequent removal of the psychological lever could not be ruled out. Hence, feudal morality combined recognition of the ideal of aestheticism, sexual restraint, with recognition of love as a moral virtue. In his desire to free love from all that was carnal and sinful and to transform it into an abstract emotion completely divorced from its biological base, the knight was prepared to go to great lengths, choosing as his lady a woman he had never seen or joining the ranks of the lovers of the Virgin Mary. Further, he could not go. Feudal ideology saw love as a stimulus, as a quality assisting social cohesion. Spiritual love and the knight's adoration of his lady served the interests of the noble class. The knight who would have thought nothing of sending his wife to a monastery or of slaying her for unfaithfulness would have been flattered if she had been chosen by another knight as his lady and would have made no objections to her platonic friendships. But while placing so much emphasis on spiritual love, feudal morality in no way demanded that love should determine the legal marriage relationship. Love and marriage were kept separate by feudal ideology and were only united by the bourgeois class that emerged in the 14th and 15th centuries. The exalted sophistication of feudal love existed, therefore, alongside indescribably crude norms of relations between the sexes. Sexual intercourse, both within and outside marriage, lacked the softening and inspiring element of love and remained an undisguisedly physiological act. The church pretended to wage war on depravity, but by encouraging spiritual love, it encouraged crude animal relations between the sexes. The knight who would not be parted from the emblem of the lady of his heart, who composed poetry in her honor and risked his life to win her smile, would rape a girl of the urban classes without a second thought, or order his steward to bring him a beautiful peasant for his pleasure. The wives of the knights, for their part, did not let slip the opportunity to enjoy the delights of the flesh with the troubadours and pages of the feudal household. So I just want to pause here for a second and basically reflect on what she's saying and think a little bit about why it is that this particular conception of love would be really good for the noble classes who sort of inspired it. And Kalantai is making this argument that, look, spiritual love and this kind of chivalrous passion for an inaccessible woman, whether it's the queen or somebody's wife or the Virgin Mary, actually ends up inspiring men who are knights essentially to do rather stupid things in the name of love for their lords. And this is really important in the feudal era because there are no standing armies at this period of time. All of the armies are made up of knights who are organized by the feudal lords to go off and defend their lands or attack other feudal lords or go off to, you know, the crusades. All of this is done out of a kind of personal sense of chivalry. And the social order required the protection of these knights, essentially, and one way to get the knights to do things that were basically not always in their interest, like risking their lives to defend the property of the feudal lord, 
was to build in this component of chivalrous love. And so Kolontai is really trying to get us to see that even though sexual relations and marriage were pretty crude and physiological and totally determined by family interests during the feudal era, this separate conception of romantic love begins to develop because it is useful to the upper classes, in this case, the feudal lords. It is useful to have this conception of love because it motivates people to do things that they otherwise might not do. I'm going to continue now with the essay as she talks about the decline of the feudal system and the rise of what she calls bourgeois love. With the weakening of feudalism and the growth of the new conditions of life dictated by the interests of the rising bourgeoisie, a new moral idea of relations between the sexes developed. Rejecting platonic love, the bourgeoisie defended the violated rights of the body and injected the combination of the spiritual and physical into the very conception of love. Bourgeois morality did not separate love and marriage. Marriage was the expression of the mutual attraction of the couple. In practice, of course, the bourgeoisie itself, in the name of convenience, continually sinned against this moral teaching. But the recognition of love as the pillar of marriage had a profound class basis. Under the feudal system, the family was held together firmly by the traditions of nobility and birth. The married couple was held in place by the power of the church, the unlimited authority of the head of the family, the strength of family tradition, and the will of the suzerain. Marriage was indissoluble. The bourgeois family evolved in different conditions. Its basis was not the co-ownership of family wealth, but the accumulation of capital. The family was the guardian of this capital. In order that accumulation might take place as rapidly as possible, it was important that a man's savings should be handled with care and skill. In other words, that the woman should not only be a good housewife, but also the helper and friend of her husband. With the establishment of capitalist relations and of the bourgeois social system, the family, in order to remain stable, had to be based not only on economic considerations, but also on the cooperation of all its members, who had a joint interest in the accumulation of wealth. And cooperation could serve as a more powerful factor when husband and wife and parents and children were held together by strong emotional and psychological bonds. At the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th centuries, the new economic way of life gave rise to a new ideology. The conceptions of love and marriage gradually changed. The religious reformer, Luther, and other thinkers and public figures of the Renaissance and the Reformation understood the social force of love perfectly. Aware that the stability of the family, the economic unit on which the bourgeois system rests, required that its members be linked by more than economic ties alone, the revolutionary ideologists of the rising bourgeoisie propagated the new moral idea of love that embraced both the flesh and the soul. The reformers of this period challenged the celibacy of the clergy and made merciless fun of the spiritual love of chivalry that kept the knight in a continual state of aspiration, but denied him the hope of satisfying his sensual needs. The ideologist of the bourgeoisie and the reformation recognized the legitimacy of the body's needs. Thus, while the feudal world had divided love into the sexual act— relations within marriage or with concubines, on the one hand, and spiritual platonic love, the relations between the knight and the lady of his heart, on the other, 
The bourgeois class included both the physical attraction between the sexes and the emotional attachments in its concept of love. The feudal ideal had separated love from marriage. The bourgeoisie linked the two. The bourgeoisie made love and marriage inseparable. In practice, of course, this class has always retreated from its ideal, but while the question of mutual inclination was never raised under feudalism, bourgeois morality requires that even in marriages of convenience, the partners should practice hypocrisy and pretend affection. Traces of feudal tradition and feudal attitudes to marriage and love have come down to us, surviving the centuries and accommodating themselves to the morality of the bourgeois class. Royal families and the higher ranks of the aristocracy still live according to these old norms. In these circles, it is considered amusing, but rather awkward, when a marriage is concluded on the basis of love. The princes and princesses of this world still have to bow to the demands of birth and politics, joining themselves for life to people they do not care for. In peasant families, one also finds that family and economic considerations play a big part in marriage arrangements. The peasant family differs from that of the urban industrial bourgeoisie chiefly in that it is an economic labor unit. Its members are so firmly held together by economic circumstances that inner bonds are of secondary importance. For the medieval artisan, Love, likewise, had no role in marriage, for in the context of the guild system, the family was a productive unit, and this economic rationale provided stability. The ideal of love in marriage only begins to appear when, with the emergence of the bourgeoisie, the family loses its productive function and remains a consumer unit also serving as the vehicle for the preservation of accumulated capital. But though bourgeois morality defended the rights of two loving hearts to conclude a union even in defiance of tradition, and though it criticized spiritual love and aestheticism, proclaiming love as the basis of marriage, it nevertheless defined love in a very narrow way. Love is permissible only when it is within marriage. Love outside legal marriage is considered immoral. Such ideas were often dictated, of course, by economic considerations, by the desire to prevent the distribution of capital among illegitimate children. The entire morality of the bourgeoisie was directed towards the concentration of capital. The ideal was the married couple working together to improve their welfare and to increase the wealth of their particular family unit, divorced as it was from society. Where the interests of the family and society were in conflict, Bourgeois morality decided in the interests of the family. This morality, with the utilitarianism typical of the bourgeoisie, tried to use love to its advantage, making it the main ingredient of marriage and thereby strengthening the family. Love, of course, could not be contained within the limits set down by bourgeois ideologists. Emotional conflicts grew and multiplied and found their expression in the new form of literature, the novel which the bourgeois class developed. Love constantly escaped from the narrow framework of legal marriage relations set for it into free relationships and adultery, which were condemned, but which were practiced. The bourgeois ideal of love does not correspond to the needs of the largest section of the population, the working class, nor is it relevant to the lifestyle of the working intelligentsia. This is why, in highly developed capitalist countries, one finds such an interest in the problems of sex and love, and in the search for the key to its mysteries. How, it is asked, can relations between the sexes be developed in order to increase the sum of both individual and social happiness? 
The working youth of Soviet Russia is confronting this question at this very moment. This brief survey of the evolution of the ideal of love-marriage relationships will help you, my young friend, to realize and understand that love is not the private matter it might seem to be at a first glance. Love is an important psychological and social factor, which society has always instinctively organized in its interests. Working men and women, armed with the science of Marxism and using the experience of the past, must seek to discover the place love ought to occupy in the new social order and determine the ideal of love that corresponds to their class interests. So that ends the historical section, and we are now about to, in the next episode, get into Kolontai's idea of what she calls love comradeship, which she believes is the kind of ideal love that will emerge under a socialist society. And this is really the crux of Kolontai's thinking. It's what I think has inspired generations of socialist feminists um, since this was written in the early 1920s. And I think that this essay really gives us a lot of things to discuss. And I'm hoping that when I finish reading this essay after another couple of episodes that I will have a few guests on, maybe one or two of my graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, maybe I'll bring my daughter back on to discuss the really important implications of this essay and why I think it's relevant to our lives in 2019. So thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe to AK47, the podcast reading 47 selections of the works of Alexandra Kolontai. Please tell your friends, and until next time, keep up the good fight. Yeah.